Well, it's good to see you here this morning, especially some family members from far away who have come. We appreciate you, and it's good to see you again, and we are thankful for you. Uh, Easter is always, of course, it's the high point of the Christian calendar. It really is, and it is amazing. The early church is not recorded as celebrating what we call Christmas, but they did celebrate Easter, and they looked back and celebrated the resurrection and observed Good Friday and all of that, and so uh, we are in good company when we come together to worship our Savior on Resurrection Sunday. Uh, Although for uh, one who comes up and uh, preaches God's word, it's uh, kind of overwhelming, let me say that. And so I have told you before that I feel much like the novice at a monastery who his abbot called him into the office and instructed him that the very next day he would have to give a sermon, a homily, at the morning chapel. Well, the novice was struck with fear, great fear. And uh, the next morning, chapel came, and he stood in the pulpit just like this, and all the brothers were there, all the people were there. His hands were trembling, his knees were knocking, his voice was quivering, and there was a long pause before he first spoke, and then he asked this question, do you know what I'm going to say? And they had no idea. All their heads went back and forth in unison in signaling no as if they were choreographed. He said, neither do I. Let's stand for the benediction. (laughs) Well, the next day was almost an exact repeat of the day before. Uh, The abbot had told the novice, go back in there and do it this time. All the brothers sat before him. His hands shook, his knees knocked, his voice trembled in the long pause. Do you know what I'm going to say, he asked. Well, after the previous day's experience, they had a pretty good idea, so they all nodded, yes, they thought they knew. And then he said, there's no need for me to tell you. Let's stand for the benediction. Well, about this time, the abbot was going apoplectic. You know, he was red in the face. He was pretty angry with this young man. Brought him into the office and said, if you do that again, I'm going to put you in solitary confinement where we're going to only feed you bread and water for 30 days, and I'll, you will receive any other punishment that I can think of. And tomorrow morning, tomorrow morning, give the homily and do it right. And so the third day, chapel attendants soared to an all-time high with other monasteries sending their young men over to see what was going on. Everyone was there to see what he would say, and it was almost an exact repeat. He stood trembling voice quivering, knees knocking, and after a long silence, he said, do you know what I'm going to say? Well, after three days of this, about half the people in attendance had a pretty good idea, and they nodded their head yes. The other half noticed the switch from the other two days before, and they weren't sure what to expect, so they said no. They shook their heads no, and the novice observed this and said, well, let those who know tell those who don't, and let's all stand for the benediction. And so we come with very familiar understanding of the passage read for us today out of John chapter 20, the great passage on the resurrection. But the danger for those of us who grew up in church is to recognize that we've heard this every year uh, from time to time in the Gospels, the record of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it still remains the most beautiful story in all all time. And uh, so we come to it today. And we have the greatest reason for joy in our lives, and I do have something to say today, and uh, we're coming to John chapter 20. Uh, The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that great chapter on 
the resurrection on the future and hope. He wrote that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to many. That is the reason we're here, to remember no matter how many times we've read the gospel stories, the gospel accounts, no matter how many Easter services we've sat through, this is why we're here. It's an amazing truth. It's amazing grace. Philosopher Blaise Pascal said, the supreme function of reason is to show man that some things are beyond reason. And there's an aspect where all of us understand that there is physical death, but yet to see somebody come back to life is an incredible, incredible thing, this once-in-a-lifetime kind of thing, once in history. And so as followers of Christ Jesus, uh, do we believe in his literal physical resurrection from the dead, as the Bible tells us? Uh, can we not believe that? Well, the answer is no. It is one of the fundamentals of what we call the Christian faith. And it's not a new error, by the way. There are people who don't believe Jesus rose from the dead physically, that he uh, somehow was a spiritual transformation. Again, in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul says, in effect, and I'm going to use the James McDonald paraphrase on this. Hey, guys, tune in here for a minute. If there is no such thing as the resurrection, then Jesus didn't have a resurrection either. And if Jesus didn't have a resurrection, if he didn't rise, then Christianity is in deep trouble. And uh, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul was conveying in that passage. Uh, I don't know how many of you have heard a sermon series on the last seven words of Christ or the last seven words of Jesus Christ on the cross. But who, whoever invented that series has gotten a lot of mileage out of it because as I grew up in churches, I heard it either on Good Friday or in the weeks leading up where one of the phrases were taken and uh, a whole sermon was uh, organized around that. And I think it's really kind of too bad that uh, they say this is the seven last words of Jesus. Just to remind you of what they are, in Luke 23, Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing of those crucifying him. The second one was, Woman, here is your son, John 19, as he looked down upon his mother. In Luke 23, again, to the uh, believing thief on the cross next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, John 19, I am thirsty, he said. In Mark 15, Matthew 27, he cried out to the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Luke 23, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And then the seventh one, John 19, it is finished, which we looked at last week, actually, in John 19. But actually, those are not the final words of Jesus. Uh, if you're familiar with the Gospels, Jesus uh, spoke more than that upon the earth before he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Nor do I believe that those seven words are the most significant words that Jesus spoke. And I'm going to suggest today that in the closing uh, chapters of John's Gospel here, as we have before us, there are a series of last words which are much more significant and important for us to understand and have a greater claim on our attention than the last, so-called last sayings that, as they are commonly presented. So what are, they words? what are these words? What are these phrases that Jesus utters in chapters 20 and 21 of the Gospel of John? We're only going to look at a couple of them, but the first one is peace be with you. In John chapter 20, verse 19, and in uh, 2021, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Receive the Holy Spirit. Remember, this is the resurrected, visible Jesus that is with the disciples 
uh, stop doubting and believe, verse 27. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed, verse 29. Feed my sheep in, uh, in John 21. And follow me, again, in John 21. These seven sayings may be described in these words. They're a great endowment, a great commission, a great consolation, a great challenge, a great benediction, great responsibility, and a great invitation. So if you have a copy of God's word in your hand, if you turn to John chapter 20, and we'll be looking at a few verses here this morning, not the whole chapter. There is so much there. We could spend a whole series just on that chapter. Uh, But we're going to look briefly at the first of these sayings, peace be unto you. If you turn to John chapter 20, verses 19 through 20, again, remember that uh, the disciples were in the upper room and the door was locked. Luke tells us in this parallel account that they were in great fear because of the Jews, because of the religious uh, authorities. Uh, They had seen the religious authorities take Jesus away, had him arrested and crucified by the Romans, and they were in fear for their lives, is my guess on that anyway. But they were behind locked doors in the upper room waiting, and Jesus appears in their midst in verse 19 and says, Peace be with you. And uh, when he said this, he showed them both his hands, his side, and the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, so I send you. It's an interesting statement about peace. Peace, uh, Jesus undoubtedly used the Hebrew language here, and the word, of course, is shalom. And uh, you know that that word is still in usage today among Jewish people in Israel, is my understanding. And so Jesus introduces this great word of Christ in this writing, in this account, this word shalom. And shalom is more than just, hi, how are you? It's not a flippant greeting. It is a very formal kind of greeting. It is often used uh, in the sense of God be with you. Uh, The old English would say God speed. There's an idea behind it that uh, they were overjoyed in the sense that uh, Jesus Christ had greeted them and wished them shalom. Shalom. This is God's gift to them. Uh, Moreover, in the New Testament, the thought of giving peace to men is always connected. This shalom is always connected with what God has done through Jesus Christ accomplished by his death and resurrection, as we've been looking at. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul writes about this peace in Romans 5.1. Therefore, he's speaking to believers in Jesus Christ. Therefore, since we have been justified or declared righteous through faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in this sense that Jesus is welcoming, and twice he repeats it, peace, peace be with you, peace be with you. And that is the question for us today. We live in a world that is very adverse, very difficult, very unpeaceful, and it is very adverse in that sense. And so living in that life, do we experience this peace? What is peace? I looked in various dictionaries, And one of the definition applies the word to a relationship between countries, calling it an agreement to end hostilities. That's on a a military political sense. It also, another definition calls it public order. A third definition calls it harmony in personal relationships. And, you know, none of these definitions are really very good when you think of the Hebrew term and what's behind it, the word shalom. Uh, What does it really say? As good as some definitions are, they miss the point of the justice of what Jesus Christ really meant when he offered peace to them. In the Old Testament, especially in Psalm 137, when the nation of Israel was in, they were 
uh, in, in taken away from Israel. They were in bondage in a foreign country, and they cried out, how can we sing the songs of, songs of the Lord in a foreign land? And the Israelites moaned in exile. And then in Jeremiah 29, the prophet Jeremiah tells them and exhorts them. He says these words, settle down, build houses, plant gardens, and eat what you produce in those gardens. Marry and have sons and daughters. In other words, he was telling them to unpack, get settled, and pray for this place where you're at. And uh, later on in Jeremiah, he says, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city which I have called you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because it if it prospers, you will also prosper. And in that context, we have the very familiar verse, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And so there's this idea that uh, the Israelites were to pray and to make a life in the midst of an adverse situation in a literal town, a literal country. But you and I, we live in a different situation, a different dispensation. And so all of us are seeking the peace of where God has placed it. One Old Testament professor said that shalom refers to life as God intended it to be. And that's why Jesus said shalom to these disciples. Think about where they were, their, their, their leader, their rabbi, their Messiah, their savior had been crucified. And then he appeared to Mary Magdalene and then to and now he appears to the ten here. Remember, Thomas is not with them. And so in the New Testament, John earlier in chapter 14 says, Peace I live with you, leave with you. These are Jesus' words. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give it to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And so today there's lots of things that can cause our hearts to be fearful and troubled, aren't there? Uh, all we have to do is read the morning news or read the news any time of the day, and we can be troubled. And perhaps it begins in the individual. Perhaps in your own heart you are troubled by your life and by what has happened to you. Do you experience this peace, this shalom as life as God intended it to be? There's a key to that. There's, there's a, there's a, we're going to see that there is an aspect that we can apply these things. Later on in John 16, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you so that you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Again, the Apostle Paul says, we are justified by faith, declared righteous because we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus spoke this peace to his disciples, he was speaking, first of all, with peace with God. Now, I don't know if you recognize it, but the Bible is very clear that all of humanity has been at war with God. And perhaps in your own life, you experienced that. I know I did because I was atheistic, agnostic in my 20s, in my college years and later, and I was at war with God. You're not, I didn't think literally, but I just didn't believe in him. And, but basically, if you were to write a history of all of humanity, you could entitle it The Long War Against God. And that's what it began, is. It began in the Garden of Eden, clear back in Genesis 3. Uh, humanity is opposed to him. Consequently, it is up to God to make the peace through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I had the great privilege a long time ago, many of you probably saw it, saw the battleship, the USS Missouri. Remember when it was uh, moored over at Bremerton, I think, at the naval yards there? And now it's, I think, in Hawaii at Pearl Harbor. Uh, but a great historic battleship. And on the decks of that battleship, the surrender was uh, uh, between the United States and Japan. Japan formally surrendered to the United States at the end 
of World War II, General Douglas MacArthur. He was the commander of all the armed forces in the Pacific, and Japan had been decisively defeated in the war, and as a result of that war, and Japan surrendered on that occasion on America's terms. Now, what would you think if on that day it was recorded that uh, the d delegation from the vanquished enemy came to the peace table and they wanted to bargain the terms of the surrender? No, it was unconditional. It was unconditional. And we would say, how ridiculous would that have been? The time for bargaining was passed by that point. And MacArthur was to dictate the terms of peace and the people of Japan were to receive his terms, which they did, thankfully. Uh, well, on a spiritual level, God says, if you recognize this truth on a human level, recognize it on a spiritual level. This is the way it must be between God and rebellious, sinful men and women, boys and girls. Um, you know, people come to present their terms to God. I've done it. I did it when I was an atheist and agnostic. God, if you just release me from this problem, I'll believe in you and follow you. You know, the foxhole conversion or the jailhouse conversion. If you'll do this for me, then I'll serve you and we can get along together. But there's no room for bargaining with God. If you want peace, you must receive it the way he provides it. And Jesus died to make peace, as it's declared here. And Jesus, or God says, if you're going to enter into my peace, it must be by faith in Christ and him alone and what he has done. The wonderful thing about that, though, is when God receives us, he's not frowning, he's not hostile, he's no longer looking towards us in wrath. There are no frowns, instead he smiles, and we are called his sons and daughters, and he delights in his children. And so there's this aspect that we can have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ has done. He has made it possible for you and I, if you're a believer in Christ, to someday stand before the righteous, holy God and be fully accepted by him in that future time. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous, justified by faith, we have peace with God throughout our Lord Jesus Christ. But then there's this aspect of we can have the peace of God. Do you understand the distinction? There is peace with God. The war is over, but we can have the peace of God. In Philippians chapter 4, it tells us, Paul writes there, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition and thanksgiving, present your request to God and the, look, peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Do we know this peace? We don't find peace in the world. My whole life, they've been trying to work out a peace agreement in the Middle East. I was born the same year modern-day Israel was restored in the land, and there has been nothing but turmoil and a lack of peace since. All around the world, and some of you have participated in some of that, those wars and combat. I remember in 1938, I've seen newsreel photographs of, uh, or newsreels of uh, Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain of Great Britain coming back from the Munich Accords in 1938, and he promised the e English people, peace in our times. But the words were scarcely out of his lips before Adolf Hitler was bombing Danzig and the start of World War II. I was of the generation, the 1960s generation. Remember the peace symbol? It was everywhere. And the students of the turbulent 60s were calling for peace. But they're all the idealism, the songs, the drugs, the optimism of the decade has not produced a peaceful world. We have had turmoil every, every decade since. 
The basic problem is, is that people are not at peace with God, and they don't have the peace of God inside of them. We are an agitated people, and all you have to do is read the comments on social media to see that time after time after time. But Jesus Christ made peace between the Father and all who trust in him for eternal life. And do you know this peace? That is the question. Do you know that? Uh, To the one who has faith, no explanation is necessary. But to the one without faith, no explanation is possible when we talk about the resurrection and the peace that God offers in the midst of it. Uh, And I was thinking about that. And then there's this whole aspect of dealing with our doubts, dealing with our doubts. Look at verse 24 again. Thomas, you've got to love Thomas, okay? He's gotten a bad rap, but he is, he is really Western in his mental capacity here. But Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. Remember, Jesus came the first day of his resurrection and appeared to the disciples in the upper room. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to him, unless I see his hands and the imprint of the nails and put my finger in his place and of the nails and put my hand to his side, I will not believe. He wanted absolute proof that the Savior had risen from the dead. His unbelief was demanding evidence. You know, there's this whole aspect of uh, when we fear Uh, One writer said, it's the wrong use of our imagination. It is anticipating the worst, not the best that can happen. Jack Hanley, who wrote a book called Fuzzy Memories, he said uh, these words. He said, there used to be a bully in grade school who would demand my lunch money every day. Since I was smaller, I would give it to him. Then I decided to fight back, and I started taking karate lessons. But then the karate lesson guy said I had to start paying him $5 a lesson. So... So I just went back to paying the bully, you know. Uh, you know, for many people, they feel it is easier to pay the bully than to learn how to defeat him. And are you paying the bully of doubt, you know, a bully of skepticism that is there in your life? Very easy to do, and Thomas was doing this. Uh, and there is an evidence that demands a verdict. And so in verses 26 through 28, we see that after eight days... Now, a whole week has gone by. Now, I'm trying to imagine the other disciples who saw the risen Lord in the upper room talking to Thomas. I'm sure they had many conversations and trying to convince him, yes, Jesus is alive. He rose from the dead. And Thomas is going, nope, nope, nope. I'm not going to believe that. Eight days of this. And he had to wait this. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, and the doors having been shut, stood in their midst and said, here we go, shalom, peace be with you. Thomas didn't have any peace. Peace be with you. And he turns, and I I try to, I have this mental image, and I don't know what Jesus actually looked like. Uh, We have, you know, artist renderings of Jesus, but I think of those penetrating eyes that Jesus must have had in his glorified body. And then he said to Thomas, can you imagine being Thomas standing there? And Jesus looks deep into your life, deep into your eyes. And then he tells him, uh, he said, the doors were shut, stood in their midst. He said, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here with your hand and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. So he shows Thomas his wounds. And then Thomas's response, and we have no indication that Thomas actually touched the wounds. But Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord 
and my God, my Lord and my God. What an amazing commitment he just said. And Thomas said that. What a great summary of the Christian life. Christ died to be our Savior, lives to be our Lord. It's easy to forget, and yet it is so simple. God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. In fact, I am always staggered when I think that the only signs of sin in heaven are the nail prints in Jesus' hands and the spear point in his side and through his feet that those will forever be our testimony of what Jesus did in your place and in my place. I was looking in Amazon.com and did a quick search in books for books that it, titles that include the phrase, that changed the world. La-da-da, that changed the world. And I wasn't prepared for how many hits I got. You can go home and do this, and there will be over 2,000 books in print whose title includes the phrase, that changed the world. Here's a few uh, examples of that. The most recent one is entitled, The Boo-Boos That Changed the World, The True Story About Accidental Invention, and then in parentheses, really, as if we don't believe them, okay? Other titles include Cod, you know, the fish, Cod, A Biography of the Fish That Changed the World. I actually have that book if you'd like to borrow it. It's not very thick. Uh, another one, El Nino, the weather phenomena that changed the world. Model T Ford, the car that changed the world. The Pill, a biography of the drug that changed the world. The Twist, the story of the song and dance that changed the world. Here we go. Chubby Checkers. Okay. Uh, mauve, the color, you know, M-A-U-V-E. Uh, how one man invented a color that changed the world. Men, I'm a little disappointed that we invented mauve. <laughs> but wait for it. This one you're going to want to run home and order on your Amazon Prime account. Banana. The fate of the fruit that changed the world. So you can get all sorts of things that changed the world. But yet there is one book uh, that's not consistently overstated on a subject. But here's one that lives up to the hype. The weekend that changed the world, the mystery of Jerusalem's empty tomb by Peter Walker. It did change the world. Jesus Christ has changed many millions of lives because of what happened there. In verses 29 and 31, we have life from the resurrection. Well, let me go back to, yeah, verse 29. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. Uh, now, none of us saw the risen Christ, and yet we are blessed here because those of us who have believed in Jesus for eternal well-being were spoken of here. Thomas believed because he saw the evidence, but we believe based upon the word of God and God's work in our heart. Move from doubt to faith, and what a blessing it is. In verses 30, 31, which is the purpose statement of the Gospel of John, uh, bringing the, believing that Jesus is your Savior brings life. Therefore, many other signs of Jesus were also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. And now notice the purpose. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Life in his name. In John 11, Jesus, after, before Lazarus was raised from the dead, told his sister Martha, I am the resurrection 
and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And of course she did. And that's the question that is so pointed to each one of us. Do you believe this, that Jesus raised from the dead? Uh, I was looking at, you know, it's, it, it's obvious that uh, this is April Fool's Day, and uh, it's very shadowy how that ever got started, but I was thinking that the last time, I looked it up, the last time Easter Sunday converged with April Fool's Day was in 1956, uh, so we won't have to do that again in our lifetime, I don't think, uh, but I was, I was thinking about that. I was thinking of uh, the martyred missionary Jim Elliott down in South America, and in his prayer journal uh, dated October 28, 1949, he wrote these words. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Belief in the Lord Jesus Christ is what he was talking about. So this morning, we pray and we trust, and you can accept Jesus right where you're sitting. If you have never trusted in Christ for your eternal well-being, if you have never done that and can't remember doing that, today is the day, can be the day of your salvation. Well, you know for sure that you'll spend eternity in heaven with him. Again, I go back, the verse that I got saved with was John 3.16, and I want you to insert your name, for God so loved your name. God so loved Gary that he gave Gary his only begotten son, that if Gary believeth in him, he will not perish, but have everlasting life. And I always look when these conditional phrases are used in Scripture, what's the condition and what's the consequence? Well, the consequence is everlasting life. Who doesn't want that? Everlasting life, forever in God's presence in a perfect environment. Now, the condition then, what is that? It's belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, fully persuaded that Jesus is the one who gives you eternal life. He said he did. He said he would. He rose from the dead. And he is gaining a place for you in heaven if you will just receive him as your Savior. Belief in the Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Heavenly Father, this morning I thank you and praise you that you are almighty God, that there is none like you, and that you've given us your word, and you've given us the record of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that. And thank you for this Easter Sunday in which we can remember and celebrate what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.